Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters this week. That's Jennifer Johnson, Marina Hogan and Josh Chappell. Thank you and all my other Patreons so much. And I really hope you enjoy listening to the six bonus episodes with one more to come every month. Today, we have the second and final part covering the case of Robert Moan, which, as you may recall, was expertly researched by the True Crime Enthusiast. Please head to his excellent website at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com or find him on social media. If you don't know him, trust me, he's a friendly chap and he's always ready to chat. If you recall, last week we left the story when Moan and his lover McCulloch were ready to make the break from Carstairs Hospital. At 6pm on the 30th November 1976, the pair were ready to make their break. But before we return to the story, a quick word about the sponsors of today's show, Harry's. As regular listeners will know, I use Harry's myself, and like my delicate personality, my skin is also sensitive, and Harry's I think is great for sensitive skin. And you can now get a Harry's shaving set worth £11.50 delivered to your door for just £2.95. This just covers the cost of postage and packing. Just head to harrys.com forward slash true crime. And for me, it isn't just about the great shave. As you probably know, I'm not so good at being told what to do and following rules. It just doesn't really work for me so well. The founders at Harry's share that philosophy. Andy and Jeff were fed up with being overcharged for razors, which is why they started their own company. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £2.95. Support this podcast and get the trial set delivered straight to your door, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash truecrime right now. That's harrys.com slash truecrime. So on with today's episode. In November 1976, Shawadi Wadi topped the charts with Under the Moon of Love, with If You Leave Me Now by Chicago at number two, and Leo Sayer at number three with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. In the US, Rod Stewart topped the charts with Tonight's Tonight, and on the evening of the 30th of November in Scotland, Tonight was indeed the night, as Moan and McCulloch were ready to make their break for freedom. The drama group had just finished reading extracts from what was to be their next production, which was John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. And as the rest of the group filtered back to the ward, Mona McCulloch hung back. The drama group had just finished reading extracts from what was to be their next production, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. And as the rest of the group filtered back to the ward, Mona McCulloch hung back. McCulloch pulled on a homemade belt that carried three knives and the hand axe. Moan had knives concealed in his shirt and trousers, and by all accounts he believed that the weapons the pair had would be enough of a visual deterrent without needing to be used. But as we know, this is a very inexact science, and events were soon to prove otherwise. Shortly after 6pm, Mona McCullough came to the large store come cupboard in the Carstairs Social Club, where their supervising nursing officer, Neil McClellan, was talking to another patient, Ian Simpson. The four men were the last ones in the social club, and then it began. Moan threw paint stripper into the eyes of Ian Simpson, while McCulloch did the same to Neil McClellan. The plan was to use the paint stripper to stop any resistance, and the victims would then be bound, gagged, and locked in the store cupboard, 
so allowing the remainder of the escape to proceed unhindered. But both Ian Simpson and Neil McKellen fought back powerfully, causing McCulloch to attack Ian Simpson from behind with the axe. He struck him so hard that part of Ian Simpson's skull were later found entwined in Moan's heavily blood-stained clothing. McCulloch then turned his attention to Officer Neil McClellan, slashing at him with one of the homemade knives and shouting to Moan, Get the keys! Moan managed to find the keys, which had been dropped in the struggle, but whilst doing so he noticed that Ian Simpson was stirring and he reached for one of the homemade knives that had been dropped during the commotion. Noticing a pitchfork that had fallen to the floor, Moan picked it up and stabbed Ian Simpson in the chest with it, gruesomely leaving the implement sticking out of his body. At least the next part of the escape did go as planned. Moan used the keys to gain access to the nursing office and he managed to cut both the internal and external phone lines. But as the pair were about to wear the disguises and uniforms that were key to the escape, McCulloch claimed he was going back to get the drama room door keys. Now even in this heightened moment, this surprised Moan as the doors were already open but it transpired that McCulloch was actually going back to satisfy his bloodlust. He returned with a larger axe that he'd found, and he smashed in the heads of both the already nearly dead Ian Simpson and the dying officer Neil McClellan. He only stopped when the devastation was so complete that it was apparent to anyone, at even a cursory glance to anybody, that both men were clearly dead. Just murder was not enough for McCulloch and he even sliced off Ian Simpson's ears and scalped him before returning to the waiting moan. The badly mutilated corpses would not be discovered for another hour, and the nursing officer who found the bodies, John Hughes, was to describe the scene years later in graphic detail. He said, I found Neil, and I knew in my heart that he was dead as soon as I walked in that room. I bent over Neil, and I didn't recognise him. I felt a drip on the back of my neck and put my hands to my head. It was Neil's blood dripping off the ceiling. They'd hit him so hard with the axe that his blood had sprayed everywhere. His face was blown up with the pressure of the axe and was smothered in blood and fluid. All I could see was bone. The back of his scalp was wide open where they'd used a fireman's axe to slice open his head. I didn't recognise him. He didn't have his glasses on. They were broken and on the ground. That was when it hit me. By this time the pair had managed to get outside and used their well-constructed rope ladder to scale the outer barbed wire fence. In the darkness, they had found themselves on one of the main roads within the greater hospital precincts. It was time for the execution of the next part of the escape plan. Whilst Moan lay in the middle of the road, posing like an accident victim, McCulloch stood waving his torch to signal a car to stop. Soon enough, and still without their escape having been discovered, a dark Volvo car stopped in the road. The driver was a man named Robert McCullum, who stopped his vehicle and got out to provide assistance to what he believed to be a serious accident. It's really likely, bearing in mind what had just transpired minutes before, that those steps McCullum took towards the prone figure lying in the middle of the road would have been the last he'd ever taken, if it wasn't for yet another twist in the events of that evening. Mona McCulloch would have undoubtedly overpowered him, and probably killed him, not thinking anything of it, before taking off in his car. But before they could do that, at that very moment a police patrol car was passing the scene and it also stopped to give assistance. As it stopped, the two constables in the vehicle, PC John Gillies 
and PC George Taylor got out and approached the three men. Moan immediately jumped up and both he and McCulloch launched a ferocious attack on the two policemen. Moan was armed with a smaller axe and a knife and McCulloch had the larger axe. While the escapees grappled with the policemen, McCallum fled in his car, stopping and alerting a gatekeeper to the attack that was occurring just a short distance away. PC Gillies sustained serious injuries, but was ultimately to survive the onslaught. Unfortunately, PC Taylor was not so lucky. He managed to stagger a short distance away from the scene, despite having horrific head and chest injuries, but he was to die of his wounds. In the space of less than 40 minutes, Mona McCulloch had hacked to death three people and tried to kill four. This time McCulloch did not wait to inflict more mutilation upon his victims and instead the pair sped off in the stolen police car trying to make as much distance between themselves and the hospital as possible. The car headed south with McCulloch driving erratically as it had been many years since he'd last driven a motor vehicle. Meanwhile, Moan tried in vain to operate the police radio in the vehicle to try and find out how much, if any, the authorities knew of their whereabouts now that the alarm had been raised. Moan himself was later to claim, perhaps through bravado, that he was trying to give false information over the radio to try and confuse police hunting for them. Now, it may have been due to this distraction, the icy road conditions, the erratic driving, or perhaps a combination of all of this. But just 10 miles down the road from Carstairs Hospital, the vehicle skidded off the road, ploughed into an embankment and was completely wrecked. Moan actually went through the windscreen and lay unconscious for a short time. He regained consciousness to hear McCulloch shouting, help me with the prisoner, to two men in the van who had stopped to give assistance, William Lennon and Jack McElroy. When they approached to offer assistance, Moan and McCulloch then brutally stabbed both men several times, causing severe injuries before bundling them into the back of their own van and they sped off again. But in what was a recurring theme, once more McCulloch's driving ability let them down. And soon after getting back underway, McCulloch had managed to drive into a field after seeing what he wrongly believed were the lights of a police roadblock ahead. It's almost comic, isn't it, if it wasn't so horrendous? The van became stuck in mud and Moan and McCulloch were forced to continue on foot, with Moan stopping to be violently sick and collapsing several times from the concussion he'd received in the earlier crash. Leaving their two captives badly injured, but thankfully alive, in the back of the van, Mona McCulloch made their way in the direction of some lights that they saw coming from a nearby farmhouse. On their way, they had to wade across a river, and Mona actually collapsed whilst crossing. McCulloch had managed to cross without difficulty, and he hesitated from the bank, looking back at Moan as if deciding whether or not to help him, or to leave him to drown, before stretching out the shaft of the axe for Moan to grab, where he then pulled him to the safety of the riverbank. It later emerged that McCulloch would equally have killed Moan there and then, as opposed to helping him out. So there's two escapees, Moan and McCulloch, heavily bloodstained, soaked to the skin, and still in possession of several dangerous weapons, reached the door of the isolated Townfoot Farm farmhouse and battered on it. When the door was open, the two men burst in, McCulloch struggling with the homeowner in the hallway, whilst Moan made his way to the living room, where the Craig family, including four children, had been watching us in Andrew's Day Scottish music programme. Moan wrenched a telephone from the wall and then demanded the keys to the family vehicle. 
Fortunately for the Craig family, neither Moe nor McCulloch showed an inclination for further violence, because once they had the keys, the pair fled in the car, in Austin, the third vehicle they'd used that night, despite still being less than 25 miles from the hospital they'd escaped from. By this time, police from all over Lanarkshire and the borders were hunting the pair, as the alarm had been raised by the gatekeeper at Carstairs. The bodies of Ian Simpson and Neil McClellan had by this time been discovered. PC Gillies and Taylor had been rushed to hospital, where PC Taylor sadly died, and the van containing the badly wounded Jack Lennon and Jack McElroy had been discovered after the farmer whose car the pair had taken had raised the alarm. A description of the vehicle that the two were travelling in had been circulated, and officers on the A74 cited the stolen vehicle being driven south at high speed. A pursuit followed, with police vehicles following the car all the way to the English border and then beyond. And it was just north of Carlisle, where a police vehicle that was packed with armed officers from Cumbrian Police ran the getaway vehicle in an attempt to stop it. It rendered the police vehicle immobile, but it caused McCulloch to lose control of his car for the second time that evening. The Austin crashed into a roundabout a few hundred yards away, narrowly missing another vehicle and causing it to stop. McCulloch and Moan quickly got out of their wrecked vehicle and they ordered the shaken driver of the car they'd narrowly missed to get out too. He did so, but luckily for him he had the presence of mind to grab his keys as he did. Before the police could escape in their fourth vehicle of the evening, several armed police officers arrived and surrounded the vehicle. Moan was dragged out struggling, still wielding a knife, and a police officer received injuries to his hand from when he grabbed the blade, holding it firmly while he restrained Moan. McCulloch was taken down by two armed officers, still in possession of his fireman's axe. The pair were taken into custody at Carlisle before being returned to Lanark and one of the bloodiest nights in Scottish criminal history had come to an end. The three Cumbrian officers who captured the pair were later to receive the Queen's Gallantry Medal for bravery for doing so. In February 1977, three months after the Night of Carnage, Mona McCulloch appeared at the High Court in Edinburgh. McCulloch admitted killing patient Ian Simpson, nursing officer Neil McClellan and PC George Taylor. Moan admitted the murder of PC Taylor. The presiding judge, Lord Dunpark, claimed that the murders the pair had committed and admitted to were the most deliberately brutal murders he'd ever dealt with, and he made legal history by ordering them to remain in prison until the day both of them died, saying, I will recommend that you are not to be released from prison unless and until the authorities are satisfied, if ever, that you have ceased to be a danger to the public at large. This was the first time that natural life sentences had ever been handed down in Scotland. The preceding three months since their recapture had seen both men undergo psychiatric evaluations and according to reports given to Lord Dunpark at the time of the hearing, and this was quite controversial at the time, both men were found to be sane at the time of the attacks. It raised many questions about Carstairs. Why should either of these men have been there at all if they were sane? And of course questions were raised about security failings at the institution, such as how had two patients managed to obtain so many supplies to facilitate and assist in an escape? And how were they able to conceal so many dangerous weapons? Neither man was ever to return to the state hostel at Carstairs, with McCulloch instead being sent to Peterhead Prison, which was unpopular with prisoners due to its remoteness and Moan was sent to prison in Perth. Both men were unsurprisingly classed as Category A prisoners, the highest risk that there is. 
And the aftermath of the escape was yet to have even more dramatic consequences. There was still more horror to come. The name Moan wasn't quite ready to be forgotten by the general public just yet. Skip forward now to the very start of 1979, the 4th of January. Detective Chief Inspector David Fotheringham of Dundee CID was making a routine paper sift full of the daily crime reports and missing person reports from the uniform section and he was considering which ones to take on for further action. One in particular caught his eye that day. It was a report about the disappearance of an elderly Dundee woman, 78-year-old Agnes War. The report detailed how Agnes had not been seen for six days since she was seen at her home in Grey Memorial House on Kinghorn Road in Dundee's Hilltown district on the afternoon of the 29th of December. Grey Memorial House was at the time a block of flats on one side of an area of Hilltown known as The Law, or more commonly known locally by the title of No Man's Land. The letting regulations there stipulated that the flats in that block could only be rented to females, but the block was pretty open for the time and a large number of people came and went. Agnes was well known throughout the area and other residents looked out for her. They were alarmed to find her flat door open and the gas fire in the living room on full but with no sign of Agnes anywhere. It was bitterly cold and there was snow on the ground. Although only 78 she was quite frail and a little unsteady on her feet. At first it was thought she may have wandered off and had an accident but a check of local hospitals proved negative and anyway she wasn't the sort of person who would have wandered far from home. DC Fotheringham just had a bad feeling about this case and he ordered a major hunt. Uniformed and plainclothes police officers swamped the area and every flat in the block was entered and searched even if that meant forcing entry. One by one the search continued and all the occupants cooperated with officers they were only too anxious to help search for Agnes. But despite these efforts, no sign of Agnes War was found. There was only one flat from which there was no answer, and this was on the ground floor of the block at the rear, where the curtains were drawn on all the windows. Late that afternoon, a detective forced the living room window to open the curtains and gain access, and as soon as he had done so, that familiar, nauseating smell emanating from the property told him just what was inside. In the fading light, the policeman could just make out the outline of an arm hanging from a bed recess. I've said this many times on the podcast, but it was only when police entered the scene that they could appreciate the full horror of what was before them. Laid out on the bed was the body of a young woman who showed signs of being severely beaten around the face and neck with a stocking and an electric flex knotted tightly around her neck. Across from the bed, at either side of the fireplace in armchairs were the bodies of two other women. Both were elderly. Both had clearly been beaten about the face and the neck and both had stockings knotted tightly around their necks. Each of these women had also been bound to the chairs by polythene bags tied at their wrists and ankles and it was clear that these women had all been dead for a number of days. The women were quickly identified as the missing Agnes War. 70-year-old Jane Simpson, who was the occupant of this flat, and the younger woman was identified as 29-year-old Catherine Miller, a newlywed of just two weeks, who was known in the Hilltown area where she often went on drinking binges. 
Poor Catherine was positively identified by her distraught husband, who had reported her missing when she failed to come home on the 29th of December, just one week after they'd married. Forensic experts confirmed that Catherine, Agnes and Jane had all been dead for several days, probably since the 29th of December, when both Agnes and Catherine had been last seen. The cause of death was ruled to be strangulation, and a close examination of the bruising to the faces of each woman was to provide a vital piece of evidence. Each woman displayed wounds that were consistent with her killer having worn a prominent ring. Forensic scientists managed to make a cast and a resin model of the wound imprint that could be used if an arrest was made. One of the largest murder hunts in Dundee police history got underway in the following days, and the press had a field day, as you can imagine, reporting on the hunts for the Grey Memorial Strangler. Everyone who had even the most tenuous connections with each woman was questioned, and every betting shop and pub in the area was visited by detectives. One of the first people to be interviewed was a nephew of Agnes War, Robert Christopher Sonny Moan. Yeah, the father of the already infamous Robert Moan Jr., who was by then serving a whole life sentence at Perth Prison. Sonny, as he was known, Moan, was a seriously disliked figure in his neighbourhood. In part one last week, we saw how he was no stranger to abusing his family, particularly his son, Robert Moan Jr., but unfortunately his bullying and violent ways were not just kept within the confines of the family. He'd a long criminal record that had begun as a small-time housebreaker and petty thug and had moved up to serious assaults. He was quick to use violence, especially after drinking. Once more, how many times have we heard this over the course of this podcast? Violence featured daily in his life as Sonny was a heavy drinker. Although he was a small and slight man, he was a notorious nasty piece of work and he didn't care if he hit men or women. Nice. Part of his tough guy routine was to swagger about town with his thumbs stuck into the pockets of his trousers, picking fights with anybody, usually, as is the style of bullies, with somebody smaller than him. He was also very fond of showing off his tattoos with the initials IHS tattooed across his chest representing in his service, a reference to the devil. And then his pride and joy, the letters TNT emblazoned on his, on his male parts. It's probably best not to go any further or speculate further on this tattoo on the family podcast. This was all part of his big act to try to pass himself off as a big shot among the Dundee criminal element and someone to be feared. Moan Senior also revelled in the notoriety of the unspeakable crimes that his son Robert had committed and he would regularly bend the ear of anybody he came across each night whilst out drinking in the city pubs. He spoke longingly of his pride and affection for his son, whom he referred to as the Carstairs Killer and how much he wanted to be with him in prison. In fact, he said words to that effect on the afternoon of the 29th of December, the day Agnes was last seen. Sonny had been in the Venel public house, just around the corner from the scene of the triple murder, and had been his usual tedious and troublesome self, drunk as usual, and spoiling for a fight, threatening anybody who complained about his behaviour with violence. Throughout all of his drunken ramblings, one message was always clear. Moan was boasting that he would become more famous than his son. Just imagine stumbling on someone like this, 
when you're out for a couple of drinks in a strange city. Luckily there aren't too many people like him around. Questioned by police about his movements that day, Moan admitted readily that he'd been in the flat that afternoon with Jane Simpson and another man, 22-year-old Stuart Hutton, who was known better in the local community as Billy Rebel, and who was a drinking acquaintance of Moan, Jane and Catherine. Moan claimed that the two men had taken some more alcohol to the flat and had a drinking session until mid-afternoon, when Moan had then left the flat to get fresh supplies. Remember, these were the days when the pubs weren't open all day. Hutton, when questioned, told the same story, except he claimed it was he who'd left the flat to get more supplies of alcohol. In fact, Hutton had never returned to the flat. Instead, he spent the money he'd been given to get more alcohol in a betting shop. He claimed that he had a strange feeling about the atmosphere in the flat that day, and he was not anxious to return, knowing Moan's character when he'd been drinking heavily. Police were able to confirm Hutton's story through checks at the betting shop, and he also had alibis for the remainder of the afternoon. So Moan Senior was now the prime and obvious suspect. He was there at the crucial time, was known to be violent to women, and perhaps most importantly, he'd boasted that he'd be more famous than his son. Had he really killed three women in some sick game of anything you can do, I can do better? Surely not. Moan Senior was questioned at length over several days, and although he never admitted the murders, he never denied them either. Instead, with his typical swagger, he hinted that he knew more than he was saying, and all he seemed to be concerned with was to talk about his son. But even this didn't come across as concern and fatherly love, but more to bolster his own status as a hard man. He told one police officer, I don't care for the jungle outside no more. All I live for is to be there with him. If I was there, I would see he gets everything that's going. Pills, booze, everything. The lot. Oh dear, doesn't this display of fatherly concern bring a tear to the eye? Whilst he was being interviewed, detectives looked to see if he wore a ring with a prominent face, but he didn't. But they still believed they had their killer in front of them. And then they had a breakthrough. Inquiries revealed that Moan did indeed have a prominent ring, a silver band with a large jade stone. It had, ironically, belonged to his son, who'd given it to his dad when he was sent to Perth prison. If detectives could find the ring, they could try to match it with the indentations on the victims' faces. A search warrant detailing the description of the ring and its importance as evidence in the case was issued, and Moan's house, his sister's house, and even his estranged wife's house in Glasgow was searched looking for it. However, it couldn't be found. In the midst of all this activity, Moan Senior went about his routine, apparently unconcerned. He even took a trip to Perth Prison to visit his son, who he was so obsessed with. Although the evidence against Moan Senior was, well, it was very thin at best, an agreement was made between the police and the authorities that there was a borderline case. It was two weeks after the discovery of the murders, on the 18th of January 1979, that Crown prosecutors agreed an arrest warrant for Robert Christopher Moan Sr. It was decided that the public interest was so great that an attempt had to be made to convict the prime suspect. The warrant was issued and Moan Sr. was arrested later that afternoon in the street near his home. When arrested, Moan was wearing the very ring that the police had searched so long for. In June 1979, 
Robert Christopher Moan Sr. stood trial at the High Court in Dundee, charged with the murders of Agnes War, Jane Simpson and Catherine Miller, to which he pleaded not guilty. The linchpin of the prosecution evidence was the ring that had been passed from killer son to father. The cast of the wound imprints that had been made at the time forensic scientists examined the body had been compared with the ring that Moan had been wearing when arrested, and they were found to match nearly perfectly. Crucially, traces of blood group A, the same as belonged to Agnes and Catherine, were also found on the ring. And if this wasn't persuasive enough, one of the trial witnesses was to produce a sensational moment that proved to be damning. Moan's daughter, 15-year-old Roseanne, told the court that her father had loaned her the ring the previous year after she'd expressed admiration for it, but he'd asked it back for a short time. When asked why, she replied through tears, My dad said it was useful in a fight. It took just 75 minutes for a jury to decide that Moan Senior was guilty of the crimes he was accused of, but Moan himself was typically aggressive and cocky to the end. Passing the mandatory life sentence to him, Lord Robertson told the unflinching, unemotional Moan, You've been convicted of what I can only describe as a terrible crime. In view of the enormity of this crime, I shall make a recommendation that you serve a minimum of 15 years. Moan replied, Would you mind backdating it? Cocky and aggressive to the last, he then struggled with the police constable taking him down to the cells, assaulting him and shouting, Get your hands off me. Sent to Craig Inch's prison in Aberdeen, Moan was never to be with the son that he claimed alternately to love and to miss, and then to want to gain one-upmanship on. His prison life mirrored pretty much his outside life, as he was, well, he was detested inside prison, as much as he'd been outside. He intimidated the younger and smaller inmates with his physical fitness and bullying, regularly showing off by hanging by his feet from a beam ten feet above a concrete floor with his arms folded, and preying on those weaker than himself to satisfy his sexual appetite. In 1983, just three and a half years into his sentence, Moan Senior was stabbed to death by a fellow inmate, who butchered him with two knives in an echo of the bloodshed his son had been a part of several years before. No one was particularly shocked that such a nasty piece of work met such a violent end, and even fewer people really cared. The inmate who killed him even described him as probably the most obnoxious person in the country. With Moan Senior dead, what happened to the other two main players in this entire drama? Thomas McCulloch and the person at the epicentre of it all, Robert Francis Moan Jr. In 2002, new laws under the European Convention on Human Rights meant that the whole life sentences that were issued to Moan and McCulloch in 77 were to be reviewed. Moan had the punishment element of his sentence at 25 years and McCulloch's was set at 30 years, so both would become eligible for possible parole by that time. By 2005, McCulloch was still in prison but was studying for a law degree and he'd trained to become a, a counsellor and he helped other inmates with their personal issues. His prisoner category status was downgraded and there were moves begun to prepare him for his release. He was moved to HMP Castle Huntley, an open prison, and he was allowed regular trips out, more than 100 unsupervised visits in total. He even managed to begin a relationship with a 48-year-old woman, Susan Perry. But public feeling about the horrific crimes he'd committed still ran high, and an attempt for a release into the community in 2010 stalled 
when attempts to rehouse him in Dumbarton were abandoned, when locals threatened to lynch him after finding out the identity of their potential new residents. He was, however, eventually released on life licence in 2011, where he went on to marry Susan Perry and settle down to a new life in Dundee, much to the disgust of his victims, opposition from senior government figures, and there were several scenes of angry public protest. The son of nursing officer, Neil McClellan, who Moan and McCulloch had butchered during their breakout from Carstairs, echoed public opinion and the thoughts of the victims' families. He said, Life should be life. He was sentenced to die in jail, and I don't see why that should have changed. He gets another chance, but there's three people in the cemetery who won't get that chance because of what they did. Robert Moan is still in prison to this day. He's become Scotland's longest-serving prisoner, despite at one time it looked like a release was on the cards for him too. In fact, preparations for his release were being made in 2011, even to the extent that he was allowed out on several-day releases. But authorities held off on plans for his release after concerns were raised about his behaviour, and the possibility that he was using such releases to make outside preparations for yet another prison escape. It's fair to say that Moan has been involved in several incidents over the many years he's been in prison. For example, in 1981, his name was amongst those involved in a destructive rooftop protest at Perth Prison. And in 1995, Moan had six months added on to his life sentence for attacking a fellow prisoner with boiling water. He still maintains hope that he will be paroled and released on life licence. More so now that his partner in crime McCulloch has been freed. Moan has even changed his name to James Smith, as he believes that his release is imminent. There are reports that he's trying to convince desperately the parole board who have the final say in this, that he's fully rehabilitated and should be released. But of course there are many that believe Moan is still a danger to this day. Extracts from letters to a pen friend were made public, in which he discusses his plans upon release. But in these letters, he never once mentions any regret or sorrow for the victims of his crimes. In fact, he even boasts how up to 540 people were left traumatised by his crimes, and rather sickeningly he awarded his victims points for their anguish. The name Robert Moan, nearly 50 years after he committed the horrific murder that introduced his name to the public, still creates widespread public fury and anger. Many believe that he'll never be safe to be released, and even more believe that he deserves to languish in prison until the day he dies, paying for his horrific crimes. In 2007, one of the schoolgirls at Moan held at gunpoint the day he murdered Nanette at the school, spoke out about that afternoon and gave her opinion of Moan. In an interview with a Scottish newspaper, she said, His face has always haunted me. There isn't a day that goes by when I don't think of him. The memory of him pressing the gun to my head flashes through my mind. He fired the gun. I heard him pull the trigger. I found out later the pin missed and it didn't fire a bullet. He didn't think how he was destroying the lives of 14-year-old girls. He didn't care. He should never, ever be released. It's in him to kill again. Former nursing officer at Carstairs, the officer who found the mutilated bodies of Neil McClellan and Ian Simpson, John Hughes, said of Mona McCulloch, Mona is still feeding off the past. He remembers every tiny detail of that day. He gets pleasure from it. I haven't forgotten that day because I was left traumatised. But Moan and McCulloch are like a couple of vultures feeding off the carcass of 1976. They will never change, ever. 
You cannot rehabilitate these people to go back among human beings. People like them cannot be cured. So what do you think about what we've heard today? I think it's about as shocking as it gets on so many different levels. The gratuitous violence. The complete lack of empathy for victims. And just the sheer horror of the crimes we've listened to. The children at the school forever affected and all the friends and families of the other victims. As for Robert Moan Sr., well, you just couldn't have made it up. His childish antics would be almost amusing if not so utterly horrific. I mean, brutal murders and other violence to outdo his son. We can only imagine how the friends and families of his victims feel about their way their lives counted as no more than a game for this monster. If you are new to this case, take a look at some of the publicity in the forums about the release of McCulloch and the potential release of Moan to really gain an insight into the depth of feeling that's still felt about their actions. The pictures of McCulloch on the outside with his wife are pretty tough to look at. Marion McClellan, whose husband was butchered by McCulloch, can't believe that he's been freed. And it's hard not to agree with her, don't you think? She said, This man's crime has devastated our family, and the pain doesn't stop with me or my son. My nine-year-old grandchild knows how her grandfather died. How are you meant to help a little girl come to terms with that? Her son John thinks the whole relationship with his new wife is a farce, saying, It's part of the pretense. You have a man who is a homosexual meeting a random woman. She went up to him and asked if he was moan, but though she was wrong, they still had love at first sight. You couldn't make it up. It probably helped paint an image of reform and stability for the parole board. He's a high IQ and he knows what he is doing. It's a big con and we may well see what he is capable of in due course. And what about Robert Moan Jr. who is still pushing for freedom? Will he ever be released? Or does he present as much of a danger to the public now as he has for nearly 50 years? Surely he can't ever be released. Can he? I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and, well, last week's episode, the two-parter of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. A huge thank you again to the True Crime Enthusiast for his excellent research and writing. If you are not already a regular reader of his website, please take a look now at truecrimeenthusiasts.wordpress.com or find him on social media. Even better, why not head to the UK True Crime Facebook group and ask him about his work? Find details of this site at uktruecrime.com. To support this show and listen to six bonus episodes for just £3 a month, please head to patreon.com slash uktruecrime. I'll leave you now to order your shaving equipment at Harry's. Remember, harrys.com forward slash truecrime. So until we speak on Tuesday, relax. Remember, things rarely matter as much as you think. And most of all, if nothing else... Stay classy. Cheerio for now.